Angel, thank you for doing this. Why don't we get started? Um, we, we have been doing a series of conversations uh, uh, on Zoom for um, our contributors. I wish we could do more of them, but this is the third in uh, to, to come out of our uh, sixth issue of Sapir, which is the education issue. And uh, Angel, thank you so much. You are in London right now covering uh, some sort of event that's taking place there. Uh, you are doing so in your role um, as uh, a roving and distinguished senior correspondent for Haaretz. Uh, it's not the only hat that you wear. Uh, you are also the economist's uh, correspondent uh, in, uh, in Israel. And uh, the most important of your jobs, if I, if I may say, is that you are the author of um, a feature, uh, which we call Jewish Postcards, um, this time a postcard from a wartime uh, wartime Ukraine. You you reported this story in Ukraine. Was it in April that you were there? It was late April, early May. And this was my second visit to Ukraine during the war. So I want before we get into the specific uh, subject, which was a really fascinating one. Your 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 time with uh, the. Jewish uh, community in the eastern city of Dnipro. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about the situation uh, of the war as you've covered it and as it has evolved, particularly uh, in the last very dramatic couple of weeks. Um, we've gone in this war from uh, thinking that uh, the Russians can't be stopped to spending a fair amount of time imagining that it was going to end in this kind of stalemate. And now suddenly um, this uh, real uh, hope uh, that um, Ukraine might actually be able to achieve uh, something that looks like uh, a victory of sorts. So do you share that optimism um, or, or what do you think the course of the war is going to be like between now and the beginning of winter? Well, we're sort of in the fourth phase of this war. This war has been going on now nearly seven months. So we had the first phase, which was the invasion, where it seemed for a very short moment that Russia was going to go you know, with all its force into Ukraine, and Ukraine would topple, and they may capture Kiev and other significant cities. And it really seemed that the first few days, and very few people, some did, but very few people predicted that it would go so badly, so quickly for Russia. But that was the first phase. The second phase was when we, when the world and Russia even realized that this wasn't going to be a quick blitzkrieg type of war and the Ukrainians were, were both much more resilient and, and inventive in, the, in, their own, uh, in their own defense than was expected. They also had some useful help from the West and perhaps even more so Russia was much weaker, much more disorganized, much more rotten. The, 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 you know, we've discovered how rotten from the core the Russian army was. This was kind of the second phase, which ended with the Russians basically saying, actually, we never met, we never really intended to capture Kiev. We're, this is all for the Donbass, this is all for fighting in the East. And that was the Russian kind of realignment, reorganization towards the East. Then we had this phase of late spring, early summer, 
in which um, Russia began its, you know, its very gradual, very aggressive, very artillery heavy war of attrition in the East, which was successful to a certain degree. They managed to capture some key areas, in, mainly in Luhansk, and obviously the destruction and, and, and subsequent uh, uh, capture of Mariupol. And now we're in the fourth phase, which is the end of the summer, the counteroffensive, much awaited counteroffensives, which seem to have succeeded much beyond anyone's expectations. Those who haven't been following in the last couple of weeks, it began in the south in the Kherson area, which was what seemed to be the main counteroffensive. Turned out that that was some kind of a diversion designed to draw Russian, the main Russian units down south, while the, the real push was up in the northern Kharkiv area, and that's where the, the Ukrainians have succeeded in, in capturing thousands of, of square kilometers and pushing the Russians back in, in what will probably be learned in military academies for generations to come. You and I have been friends for 20 years, so I know that uh, in addition to the other hats that you wear, you, you, you probably know more about military affairs than 99% of uh, military uh, correspondents, war correspondents, certainly that, that I have ever met. Um, how, how realistic are the chances of an abrupt collapse of the entire Russian uh, army or um, was what Ukraine uh, what was what Ukraine achieved was able to achieve uh, in the uh, northeast uh, not going to be uh, easily replicated elsewhere along uh, this this very long front line. Well, we said remember we're talking about massive, really massive war zone. It's not it's nothing like what where we've seen in this generation. It, it's larger than Iraq in, in that in that sense of the bat in the battlefield. That, that we're dealing here with. And the level of forces that Russia still has, are they, they, they can't muster the type of fighting units they really need to conduct this, this war seriously, but they do still have tens of thousands of soldiers there at different levels. They have the local militias of separatists. They, you know, they're bringing in police units, they're bringing in convicts, they're bringing whatever they can. That's not going to be just swept away because also the Ukrainians, with all their success in mobilizing and building some, some very effective new mobile units, what we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks on the Kherson and especially in the Kharkiv front, that that's, that that's not of a scale that can recapture all that's left of eastern Ukraine, most of Lugansk and most of the of Donetsk regions in, in a matter of weeks. What we're seeing is still about 10% of what of the, of the area which was occupied by Russia. So the remaining 90% is not something that's gonna be swept away immediately, but the, the effect I think to, to, to Russia's morale, and we're seeing it already in a lot of the propaganda coming out of Moscow has been shattering. And this could lead to some, to some key development, though it's hard to predict exactly how. How, how plausible um, is uh, the prospect of Russian use of tactical nuclear weapons or other forms of uh, unconventional warfare? I think that when we're talking about tactical nukes, we're forgetting something very, very basic. They, they're not held at the, at the unit level. They're held in a small number of central storage or bunker areas deep within Russia. These are areas that are well known to, 
to Western intelligence, satellites are continuously focused on those places. And the warheads haven't been removed from there for decades. I'm not even sure how much technical know-how or and what level of uh, what level of operability that any of these warheads have. We know this is the biggest arsenal of tactical nuclear warheads held. It's much bigger than the, the one the Americans have. But it, the level of of operability, how quickly can it be used? How flex? I mean, these are supposed to be flexible. These, they were meant to be used in a flexible way to stop a possible NATO attack on what was then the Warsaw, on, on then Soviet bloc. I don't really think that that the, the the way that you need to use these weapons is 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 at all feasible in this war. I'm not saying it's impossible. I just don't see it happening in this kind of simple way that people are throwing out. Oh well, Putin may use tactical nukes. Well, it's also the case that the doc, tactical nukes were really introduced not by the Russians so much as by the United States, which needed to compensate for deficient manpower in Europe with um, and, and, and insufficient precision-guided munitions also before precision-guided munitions really existed by being able to use weapons that could destroy large amounts of um, enemy formations, artillery concentrations, and so on without absolutely decimating the battlefield and rendering it uninhabitable. So it's not even a, a clear what Russia would target with a tactical uh, a, a tactical nuclear weapon, other than to use it as a simple instrument of terror, at which point it effectively becomes a strategic, uh, a strategic weapon. I want to ask you one more question about current situation in Ukraine before we, we turn to your, your essay. And I should say, by the way, as you and I are speaking, I'd like to encourage those of you who are listening there is a chat function, uh, there is a uh, Q&A function, and as questions occur to you in the course of uh, our conversation, um, I, I just ask if you would um, put them into that uh, Q&A box so that I can get to them uh, in the later side of this, uh, of this conversation. I want to ask you, Enchel, about Israel's policy vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Um, and Russia, because uh, Israel was um, uh, certainly in the early phases of the war when Naftali Bennett was prime minister. It was something. It was somewhat closer to the uh, India's line uh, uh, on on Russia than it was um, with Israel's traditional friends in the West. Um, it, what do you make of the wisdom of that policy now? And is there any sign that it's changed since uh, Lapid has, has become interim prime minister? Uh, and final point there, um, what would Netanyahu do if he were to return to, uh, to his old job? Well, the policy hasn't really changed over the last six months. Here and there, perhaps some rhetorical departures from the line, but in in the main, Israel's policy has remained not to take sides, to be supportive of the Ukrainians on a, on a, on a human on a human level, but not on a military level. Bennett originally thought that perhaps he could use the fact that Israel has good relations with both countries also to try and bro broker some kind of ceasefire. Nothing came out of that, and that hasn't really changed ever since. I think it's not a wise uh, policy, particularly because it's based on 
I think, an inflated fear of, of Russia, certainly when it comes to what Russia can do to Israel on a military level in Syria. There's this talk, people were saying, well, don't forget we have Russia as a neighbor because they're in Syria. This is a hugely overrated view of the very limited contingent that, that, that uh, Russia holds in Syria. Even before the war, this was at the most 20 something fighter jets, Israeli Air Force could have taken them out in, in 30 minutes if they'd wanted to. And there isn't really much that Russia can do directly against it. It's true that Russia does have, and has always had uh, uh, many Jews living in their territory to use as pawns. I'm, I'm skeptical about how much Russia could actually use that. Jews aren't in, are, don't live in Russia in the same way that they did back in the Tsar's empire. It's not like you've got these villages which you can target with, with Cossacks and, and, you know, and burn them and carry out pogroms. I'm, I think that- the, you, you, the, do you, what, what significance do you place with, with Putin closing the Jewish agency in Russia? That's something that's been going on for a couple of years. It's a, mainly a bureaucratic tangle that various officials for various motives have, have, haven't solved until now. It could have been solved quite easy if, if the Jewish agency had been under some under serious leadership, it hasn't been. It's been under a temporary chairman for over a year now. Before that, it was Isaac Herzog Bougie. He's, uh, he was the chairman, but he was only using the offices as basically his platform to run a campaign for the presidency. The Jewish agency hasn't been really functioning. It's true that it's a problem for a certain segment of Russian Jews who are trying to leave and make Aliyah, but it's not much more than a bureaucratic issue, which is being used by various politicians right now, but I, I, I don't think it's it's a bigger crisis as being made out. So is there any chance of Israeli, final question, then we'll get to Ukraine, I swear, uh, the Jewish community there, any chance of Israeli policy changing now that there is a, uh, a, a more realis realistic assessment of Russia's military and uh, other capabilities? Well, according to Lapid's people, no, they don't. They're not planning uh, any change in policy, certainly in the period between now and the election. And if Netanyahu gets back, let's remember that Netanyahu was someone who actually used photographs of him sitting, sorry, standing next to Putin, smiling as as part of his election campaigns. He wanted to be seen. He wants to be seen, or at least he wanted to be seen as a friend of Putin, just as much as he wanted to be seen as a friend of Donald Trump and Narendra Modi. Uh, I don't see Netanyahu changing policy. I don't think he's going to use the same photographs in this uh, election campaign, but I don't think he's going to do anything to, to shift on that. And to be fair, Israel's not paying a price for it, not with the West. The West isn't pressuring Israel in any major way, not in the way it's pressured other countries. And funny enough, we'll get to, we'll get into Ukraine now. In Ukraine, you've barely hear people You'll hear sometimes people saying, why does Israel send this Iron Dome and stuff like that? But it, by and large, Israel is very, very popular in Ukraine. Even now, the Ukrainians see Israel as, as a model. They, they don't see themselves as the Palestinians. They see themselves as the Israelis, and they see Russia as the Arabs. That's very much what you hear from Ukrainians from the, from, from the, from the ground roots up to the, up to the highest level of leadership. So let's now turn to your 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 trip to Ukraine, the your your April trip to Ukraine and to the this community of Dnipro. And you know, the Jewish relationship with Ukraine 
has been a fraught one to say the least uh, uh, and, a, and a tragic one to say the least for, uh, for uh, uh, centuries. Um, and uh, it's, I think, a bit surprising to, I think, certainly to a lot of American readers to discover in, in reading what you wrote just how um, rich current Jewish life is, and I mean rich in both a cultural and, and, uh, and, a, and a financial sense, current Jewish life in Ukraine uh, is and, and, and has remained. And, and why is that? So we all, are, we, we all have these very strong historic memories and many of us come from that part of the world. You know, when I, I, I drove a few, three times from Krakow all the way into central Ukraine and back again, and every time I see, oh, that's that's a place that this grand, great grandparent came from, and you know, you see them all along the way, all these names that that evoke so many memories, both warm memories of the kind of rich Jewish life that that part of the world between Poland and Ukraine had for so many centuries, and obviously the memories of how it was destroyed, uh, not just in the Holocaust, and in, also in the Holocaust, there was this large. Uh, participation of Ukrainian nationalists in, uh, in rounding up and in, and in killing many Jews long before, long before Auschwitz began, uh, was, was, was operational in that sense. Uh, and even today you see in places in Western Ukraine, you see, you see those people being commemorated on the road just, to, just towards Lviv, or as we would call it Lvov, uh, back in the day when we all spoke kind of Yiddishy kind of uh, uh, Ukrainian, Russian, Polish. There's an immaculate little cemetery overlooking the, the the main motorway with lovely white crosses, and it looks like you would think this is a cemetery of some uh, some special, uh, rich, uh, whatever. Uh, the, the people who used to who, who used to rule the country, the, the upper classes. It turns out that it's a, it's an SS Galicia. Eskelitsa is the division of Ukrainian volunteers who were in their SS, and they still have their cemetery there overlooking the main road to this day. It's well kept. So it's all still there. And the dichotomy was that Ukrainian nationalism is bad for the Jews, and wherever the Ukrainian, where the Ukrainian nation becomes an, an issue, the Jews should get out. And that was also, also the feeling after. The, the end of the Soviet Union when Ukraine became uh, became a sovereign, became an independent nation. For the first few years, even the first decade or so, there were parties within Ukrainian politics who were openly anti-Semitic and who were kind of part of that Petelura Bandera uh, tradition of, uh, of of basically seeing the Jews as 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 this uh, as the calamity of of Ukraine. And at the time, we felt, okay, everyone's leaving. They're either emigrating to Israel or they're emigrating to the US or to Germany. There's not going to be any Jews there. It turns out that many, many Jews remained. Quite a few Jews returned. And there was a reason that they, they did that, because this became a country with a lot of opportunities, a lot of business opportunities. It became a, a country where, slowly but surely, a new generation of leaders regarded anti-Semitism and that type of nationalism as something which was, wasn't useful for Ukraine. And amongst this leadership, both business leadership and, and political leadership, there were quite a large number of young Jews. One of them is now the president of the country. Well, I, want, 
I wanted to ask you about Zelensky um, uh, in, in the sense that to what, to, how strongly do you feel a kind of, to what extent is his Jewishness in the foreground of his political persona or simply, you know, in, in, in the deep background and the way that say Joe Biden being a Catholic is not something that a lot of Americans think about one way or, or, or another, or is it, is it more, more present? And has the fact of the war and being accused of being a Nazi regime by the, by, by the Kremlin uh, turned that into uh, a, a different kind of uh, asset for Ukrainians? So it's not part of it. Let's be honest. Zelensky, his daily life doesn't really have much Jewish content, if at all. His kids, according to what is said, they go to the church. His wife's religion isn't quite clear. I mean, I don't want to go into one of these like you know, these, these, these uh, tables of how Jewish is. Zelensky is Jewish. His parents are Jewish. He, everyone knows he's Jewish. And when you talk about the religion being in the foreground or in the background, when it comes to being Jewish in what was Russia or the Soviet Union, it's today Ukraine, if you're Jewish, people know it was as a, a Ukrainian Jewish friend of mine said how do you know you're Jewish because you you or your parents were beat up in school for being Jewish that's that's the kind of Jew Zelensky is it's not it's not something which is part of his daily life but it's something that he even if he wanted to he couldn't shake off he comes from a family he comes from a background that everybody knows they're Jews it's not it's not something he could get away to get away from even if he wanted to but it's not, it's not a, a part of his daily life. However, Jews who are very active in the community do take pride in him. They take, and, and more than take pride in him, they see the fact that he's president as further proof of the change that's happened in Ukraine. And he's the first Jewish president, but they've already had a Jewish prime minister. There's a Jewish defense minister right now, and many other prominent Jews in the administration over the last 10, 15 years in Ukraine. And that, I think, is, is proof of the change that the country has, got, has undergone. So let's talk about Dnipro, because you, you relate in your, in your piece how eight years ago, during a previous visit to uh, Dnipro, you were driving in the dead of night uh, through the Ukrainian backcountry. Uh, this was when the first war in the Donbass began back in, in, in 2014. Um, and you came upon the menorah center in, in Dnipro and it was something of a total uh, um, astonishment. What is, just for those who haven't read your piece, what is it, what are they, what are they doing and what role have they been playing in this war? So it's, it's really important to, to say a few words about historic Dnipro. Dnipro is a relatively new city. It's a city of industry, it was built up in the 19th century. And unlike other major, and obviously it was part of the Russian Empire at the time, unlike other ma major Russian cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, and other, there were no restrictions on Jews living there. And a certain type of Jew in the 19th century who wanted to get ahead, who wanted to have a profession, who wanted to be successful, this was a very attractive destination. They didn't see themselves as being Ukrainian Jews, they saw them being Russian Jews. But this very quickly became a city with a heavy Jewish uh, presence already in the late 19th century. And that's remained the case ever since, even though the Nazis, uh, even though the, 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 the Third Reich captured Dnipro because it was a, a center of, uh, of industry, the, most, of the, most of the population was evacuated in advance to the Urals, 
This was something done, by the way, by Brezhnev, and this was one of the things that made that one of the major successes that, that, that propelled his career and eventually made him uh, leader of the Soviet Union. And this was always a major Jewish city, even though in the Jewish traditions of Russia and the Pale Settlement, it doesn't feature heavily because there are no famous rabbis who came there. It's not an ancient community like... Well, there's one very famous rabbi who comes from there. But there, is okay. both, there are very few people know besides people who actually live there or people who are, who are really steeped in the history of that rabbi's movement. We're talking, obviously, about Menachem Mendel Schneerson, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who spent his teens there and his father was... His father wasn't the rebbe. His uncle was the rebbe, but his father, who was the rebbe, who, 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 the father of the rebbe, was the rabbi of Dnipro in the 1920s and early 30s until basically the Soviets uh, shut down. He was the rabbi of the last shul there, basically. So this this in late 19th and early 20th century Jewish Russia and Soviet. This was a very important Jewish center, and as a result of that, the number of Jews still there at the end of the Soviet era was quite large. And those who were prominent in the various industries, as we know, at the end of the Soviet era, the beginning of the post-Soviet era, we had many, let's call them clever business people getting hold of, of certain- Also known as oligarchs. Also known as oligarchs. We're talking about the Ukrainian version of the oligarch. We're not that different than their, than their Russian cousins, getting hold of, of factories, of, of entire industries, and two of those gentlemen, of two of those Ukrainian oligarchs, one called Bogolubov, the other one called Kolomoisky, both feature in the top 10, probably in the top five billionaires in Ukraine, happened to be Jewish, happened to be from Dnipro. And for them, it meant a lot to build what is the biggest Jewish cult, the biggest JCC in the world. People, I always ask people, what's the biggest JCC in the world? They think New York, LA, perhaps Paris or somewhere in Israel. No, it's in Dnipro. And the Menorah Center, which was built basically by Bogolubov and Kolomoisky is a massive complex in the center of Dnipro, which includes a, large, a number of shuls, includes the yeshiva, it includes a whole mall of kosher shops and restaurants. It's got a, it's got, it's got a five-star business hotel, some more modest hostels, it's got a college in, it's got a number of schools and kindergartens. It's got a small hospital, in it. anything you could basically want to put in a Jewish community center. This is a building that's just so, so people understand. This is a building that's what twenty four stories high, and and it's three towers. It's basically putting a finger up on the on the skyline and saying we're here. We've survived the Germans. We've survived the communists. We've survived the Ukrainian nationalists, and we're still here. And this is still a town with a significant Jewish community which plans on remaining here. And it's a community that has really been that has really been organized and run and led by Chabad. Is that right? Yeah. So the old, the the, the few old remaining members of the of the, that old community in the in the late eighties sent Lubavitcher Rebbe an effort saying, "Your father's seat is once again available. We can reopen synagogues in the Dnipro, and we're inviting you to come back." And they. And this is, this is the myth they say. Obviously, by then the Lubavitcher Rebbe was was himself a very old man, not and at the end of his days. But he sent at that time, at the very end of the Soviet era, the Glasnost, Perestroika, any moment communism is falling. He sent two shlichim, two emissaries to the what was still the Soviet Union, one to Moscow, the famous Baron Lazar, who became, as we call him, Putin's rabbi, as a story to himself. 
and the other one, Kamenetsky, the rabbi of the Dnipro. And he said to Kamenetsky, this is my town. You're going to my town to reopen Jewish life there. And basically Kamenetsky, as we see in many places, is this kind of enterprising young Lubavitch rabbi who comes with nothing. The advice he got from the Rebbe was one of the best seasons to buy potatoes to store away so you'll have food for the rest of the year. But as they do, the successful ones, at least the successful Chabad Shlichim, they find out very quickly who are the, who are the sources of power, who are the main movers and shakers, who's got the money in town, and they work out whatever system. And here Kamenetsky has built, together with his, um, with his oligarch supporters and also many other members of the community, what is an empire. He's basically built two parallel education systems. There's a smaller set of schools from kindergarten up to high school for the more religious, for the Chabad people themselves. And there's a much larger Jewish uh, education scene, which isn't, which isn't that religious. Most people who send their kids there are, are not observant. Some of them are not fully Jewish. Some of the families mixed Jewish. They have these resources. They're built there. And when you go around Dnipro, you, you kind of, you understand how, because you see how Dnipro is, a, it, it's a boom town. It's one of those towns where you're constantly seeing new buildings being built. And every and if, if you go with someone who knows the community, say, this building is being built by this guy from the community. This mall is by another Jewish business person. It's very much a place where Jews are very, are, are part of the fabric of certainly the business community. There are lots of different assessments of how many Jews they really live there. Kamenetsky said they told me and other people who in the community said they believe that 10% people who, who identify as Jews in the nearly million people, people living in Dnipro, and they think around 30% with some kind of Jewish roots, which makes it one of the biggest Jewish communities in Europe. So one question I have is, is I mean, it's, it's remarkable, but how sustainable is it? Um, and obviously a lot hinges on, on the future of, of the war, but I wanted to get a sense of A, how, how sustainable it is, but also your view on whether Jews ought to be setting up shop, so to speak, in these areas that have been in the long run, typically tragic for uh, the Jewish community worldwide? Well, I'll start with the second question. It, and this is a philosophy that I've developed over 25 years of reporting from Jewish communities all over the world. And it's not my or your, it's not, it's not our business to question why Jews live in a place. I mean, Jews live in all kinds of weird places like New York. I mean, it's not, it's not something that I would advise even Scarsdale. <laughs> I mean, it's something I, I would advise other Jews to do. I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want my children going to these places, but it's not my business to tell Jews where to live. If Jews think that they have a future in Dnipro, I'm not going to question that. Now, when we talk about sustainability, the biggest threat in the last 30 years of to Jews in Dnipro, okay, I, I mean, I'm not going back as far as communism. I mean, after, after communism and Nazism, they've survived that. The biggest threat in the last 30 years to Jews in Dnipro is Israel, not in a bad way, but the fact is that Israel is there, it's available. They've all been to Israel. I have. I did not meet one Jew in Dnipro who hadn't visited Israel multiple times, and many of them spent enough time in order to get citizenship and to study there and to, and to learn Hebrew, and then came back for various reasons to Dnipro. And you know what, when you see what they have there, 
it's not something which is totally, it's not a totally outlandish uh, choice to, to at least to live part of your life in the Dnipro. The sustainability has nothing to do with, with the war. The war is, it, the question is, will Ukraine be sustainable altogether? If Ukraine is sustainable, the Jews of the Dnipro will, will flourish. If Ukraine wins this war, if Ukraine comes out of this war, certainly if it comes out of this war, bolstered as part of the Western world, perhaps joining the European Union or joining NATO, and certainly being much more, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> aligned with the West than, than it was with Russia, then certainly this could be one of the most flourishing Jewish communities in the diaspora. And in many ways, it already is. If Ukraine is, is I mean, it doesn't look like right now, look, Ukraine is on the up, but if Ukraine if Ukraine goes down in this war, and if it ends badly, it'll end badly for the Jews as well. And this is really the fascinating historic thing that's happened here. If in the past, certainly in the early 20th century, Ukrainian nationalism was seen as a bad thing for Jews, and the flourishing of Ukrainian nationalism was a, a direct, a, literally a direct existential threat to Jews living in parts of Ukraine. Now it's the, the opposite. Jews being more inclined towards the West, being more inclined to open societies, to, to commerce, to, to, to communication, to everything that we, that we see as part of living in the West. And looking at the model that Putin has, uh, has built in the last 20 odd years in Russia, it's very clear to them what side of the equation they're on. And that's why, you, and you see that not just in the Dnipro, you see that in other parts of Ukraine as well with the Jews who've remained. And you also meet a lot of Jews in this world saying, I could escape, I could go to Israel, I could go to the US, I could just go somewhere and shelter for the meanwhile. I'm, 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 I'm still staying. Sometimes it's a very pragmatic reason. I've got a business, things have been good for me here. I can be part of this. And this is something which we, we really wouldn't have imagined 20 years ago when Ukraine was still the bad old Ukraine, even though it wasn't, there were pogroms, but it was still, you know, I, my very first visit to Kiev was 16 years ago, and someone took me to an old, but very large cemetery on the outskirts of Kiev, where the child who was killed or murdered, who knows by who, in the Bielski case, the very last blood libel of Europe, the grave is still there, and someone comes every day and cleans the grave, and if it's been snowing, brushes the snow off the grave and lays fresh flowers there. This was 16 years ago. I don't know if it's still the case, but there was still a cult around these, obviously Ukrainians are still believed in their having been, in the Jews having murdered this, this, this young child whose name I can't remember right now. But Ukraine is no longer in that place. It doesn't mean that this, you won't still hear sort of archaic words being used to describe Jews, but it's no longer the case where Jews are persecuted or seen as a bad element in Ukraine. They're seen as being the cream of society. Israel is seen as, as the most, one of the most desirable allies for, for, um, for Ukraine. And in general, people are, are really proud to say that they're Jewish. And I, and I saw that in parts of Ukraine where I was really surprised in rural areas when, if I was traveling with a Jewish colleague or a Jewish driver or, or translator, them saying it very openly, that they're Jewish and, and it being treated both as a normal and even as an admirable thing. So I think it's very easy, obviously, to become complacent about these things. But at least where Ukraine is right now, Jews feel a, a quite treasured part of the society. Let me turn to audience questions. Um, 
so I will reserve Jeff Saperstein's question for later because it's not about um, uh, you, uh, Ukraine. Um, uh, let's see. Um, so here's a, a very topical question. Emil Handelsman asks, what factors produced the shift in Ukraine from an ethnic nationalism a century ago to a civic multi-ethnic nationalism today? Um, I think that uh, the basic rule is that democracy is good for Jews. Jews, for certain short periods, have prospered perhaps under dictators, under under authoritarian leaders, if the, that if a specific leader had an interest or a liking for the Jews. We saw that until recently under Putin as well. But by and large, there's a reason why 90-odd percent of the Jewish population in the world lives today, either in Israel or in Western democracies. That's where we're secure. And as Ukraine went towards, tried to go to out of the post-Soviet era and, and away from the Russian orbit, and to a lesser degree, still it's still happening, trying to get away from the corruption of, of the post-Soviet era. That as they built, as they try to build a new type of, uh, of population, then the obvious thing would be also for the, the attitude towards the Jews to change. And I think that's uh, it's very natural that this has happened. Wanda Mazo asks, says, um, I keep thinking that those same anti-Semitic people are still living in Ukraine. How to overlook that as a Jew living in Dnipro? So it's exactly the question I asked uh, Kamenetsky and others there. And their answer is basically this. Every country has national heroes and you know, these national legends and myths and so on. Sadly, the national, the, the historic national heroes of Ukraine also were people who were anti-Semites and in some cases were also led, led pogroms. That is a part of history we can't change. What we can do is try and change the present and the future in Ukraine. And hopefully the new national heroes will not be that, that, that kind of person. And as far as they're concerned, that's happening now. The new national heroes are not those people who uh, two or three generations or more ago uh, took part in pogroms and in killing Jews. So they're, they're not closing their eyes to history, but they're, but they're, you know, they're still trying to uh, work out a way in which they can live with their, with their non-Jewish neighbors and still uh, be part of a, of a new society. Um, Alison uh, Cipriani or Cipriani has a pointed question for you, Angel. Um, is not Mr. Pfeffer's allegiance with Meretz and Haaretz, uh, does that not slant your views on issues? Few have voiced opposition with Bennett's stance of keeping things calm with Russia. Yes, our jets might knock out their jets, but then what? Then what? Not a smart position for Israel. So how do you justify such a suggestion? I uh, have had a number of conversations with Bennett over the last few months, and I think I, I, obviously I can't discuss, I can't say details of off-record conversations. But this is not a simple decision for him or for any other Israeli leader, and. They're erring, I think, I think they're erring on the side of caution. And I can understand they're erring on the side of caution. Uh, as a journalist, and not necessarily as an Aris journalist, as, as a, or as a merits voter, but I, I, many of my right-wing journalist colleagues as well, where we can 
and should be critical of of, of this uh, of this position. And I'm not sure that Israel's doing itself that many favors right now in kind of remaining neutral in this. Some people uh, can disagree, but it's not it's not necessarily a right wing left wing argument either. Let me let me push you a little bit on that because I'm curious. So if Israel were to help the Ukrainians um, beyond merely humanitarian assistance, hosp field hospitals, medicines, that kind of thing, um, uh, what what how could Israel really move the needle uh, and and meaningfully assist the Ukrainian war effort? What what would be what would be Israel's lane there? That things that Israel could do that perhaps uh, some of the other allied powers have not been able to do. I I don't think that Israel could necessarily be a game changer. Iron Dome, even though it was talking about that the Ukrainians want Iron Dome so much, is not the right kind of missile defense system for Ukraine. Iron Dome is built to protect relatively small areas, not the kind of vast expanses we're talking about in Ukraine. For Iron Dome to be effective in Ukraine, you would need about 30 batteries. That's twice the number of batteries ever manufactured for Iron Dome. Perhaps, yeah, if someone would pay for, for manufacturing 30 batteries, maybe in five years they could be ready. So it's, it's, not, it's, not, really, uh, it's not really the efficient kind of Weapons. And there are other Israeli weapons which could be useful to Ukraine, but what, none of them are, are game changers. Now there is thing, there are things Israel can can do fully for Ukraine on the intelligence sharing side, and who knows, maybe there are happening because that's not something that we can see on the ground like weapons. But it would be part of the ongoing effort, which is being done uh, by other yeah, by many Western countries, and I, we can assume that some of the information that Israel shares with its Western allies finds its way to Ukraine as well. But let's, let's look at another example. Let's look at Turkey. Turkey is a country which has is, which is sold all, uh, basically supplied Ukraine with, with their drones and still Putin is kind of, uh, he's doing nice with, with Erdogan. He's not, he hasn't created a, 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 um, a crisis with Turkey because he needs Turkey when it comes to all the exports or the Russian exports going through the, the Black Sea. So he can't basically criticize Turkey for supplying drones to, uh, to Ukraine. If Israel were to supply weapons to Ukraine, which would help Ukraine, it wouldn't be a game changer. The Russians would huff and puff. By the end of the day, Israel has, has the Russians by a quite vulnerable spot because if Israel wants to take away from Putin the one big geopolitical achievement he's had in the last 10 years, and that is propping up the Assad regime, Israel could take out Assad very quickly. And that's one of the reasons why Israel has been operating freely in Syrian airspace against Iranian targets over the last 10 years isn't because the Russians allow Israel to operate. It's because the Russians recognize that the most powerful military power in that area and over Syria isn't them, it's Israel. And it's Israel allowing Russia to operate in Syria, not the other way around. And the Russians, who understand force very well, know that. So I think that Israel could certainly pressure uh, pressure Russia in Syria, but once again, that's that is not the main asset that that Putin is after. So it would be it would be a nuisance for Russia. It wouldn't be a game changer for Ukraine. I think. Just just on that point, and before I turn to another of the audience questions, what is is there some 
something worth reading into the fact that Russia is now relying on Iranian uh, drones uh, for its to, to shore up its combat capabilities in uh, in Ukraine. Well, they're not relying on them because they haven't yet got them in the field, or they're starting to get them in the field. It's still very much early operation and capability. They haven't really been trained properly how to use them. They're not relying on them. They're, they're, they're beginning to be seen on the battlefield, but this is, this is not a period in which Russia is doing at all well on the battlefield. So maybe it will help Russia a bit, but it's not, some, it's not a major capability. Russia is trying to get whatever it can from any source. I mean, they're buying artillery shells from North Korea right now, which probably half of them will blow up within the cannons instead of being instead of flying over the, and hitting a Ukrainian target. We, you know, we're seeing Russia basically flailing around, trying to bring convicts to the battlefield, trying to bring Iranian drones that they have no preparation how to use. I mean, you don't just assimilate a new type of drone into your army just like that without significant preparation. So far, we've seen Iranian drones falling mainly in Ukraine. We haven't seen them achieving any major targets. The same goes for the way Russia's trying to rely on China. China's not helping them out. It, what Iran can do for Russia, over time, they can supply them with a certain drone capability, but it will take, I think, I think a, 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 at least a few months, if not more, for that to have any real impact on the battlefield. Robert Olesh asks, if you were able to affect America's and the world's policy regarding the Ukraine-Russia war, what would be changed? Well, uh, I think that what we should have seen, and perhaps now it's slightly less urgent, but I still think it, it should be done, is we should see a, 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 a NATO task force. This doesn't necessarily be officially NATO, but I think we should see a naval task force uh, in the Black Sea, uh, securing uh, the shipping routes there, making sure that Ukraine's main export, which is agricultural grain and, and oil and, and sunflower oil and so on, have a, a safe passage out there, because that is really where the Russians can choke the Ukrainian economy. And at the end of the day, this is also a battle between economies. Well, would you? What about the supply of uh, F-16s or uh, longer-range uh, missiles that that the Biden administration has been reluctant so far to give the Ukrainians? I mean, I guess the larger question is, what are we going for in in Ukraine? A a stalemate that feels like a moral defeat for Putin or the actual return to the lines of February 24th, if not to the lines before 2014? I think it was on a tactical level. I'm not quite sure how many F-16s the Ukrainian Air Force could field immediately and, and what impact they would have. They, they would have more impact than, than a bunch of Iranian drones. Would that totally to turn around the, the, the war overnight? I th I'm, I'm slightly skeptical. It's not that the Russians lack uh, anti-aircraft missiles. Yes, it would help push them back. It would change some of the situation in the air, but this is not very much an air battle. So, I mean, there is a certain capacity also that the Ukrainian military needs to develop to be able to absorb more types of weapons. And, and this also takes time. So I'm not certain that, that uh, a certain specific, I mean, the HIMARS 
was the right weapon at the right time to kind of change the equation when it came to artillery, especially at the point where it seemed that the Russians were managing to slightly roll over the, the Ukrainians in the east due to their artillery uh, advantage and the HIMARS was a way of changing that equation. But as it comes to the, the end goals, the, the real question is, is what's going to happen within Russia? Do we want, we don't want to see a Putin's Russia, but America's not going to, America's learned that it can't appoint a different kind of government in much smaller, weaker countries than Russia. So we're not going to get the kind of government we want to see in Russia anytime soon. We obviously have to give Ukraine the tools to to defend itself to make sure that that it doesn't, uh, it's not under threat from Russia again. And that is, I think, not so much necessary given F-16, but a steady supply of training, of, of ammunition, of all the things it needs to keep the, to keep the, the, their, their army going. And at, at the very least, to, to roll back, you know, to push back the Russians to the border. But beyond that, I don't think that, I don't think it's realistic to, to, to set an end goal beyond that. Uh, an anonymous uh, attendee uh, asks, uh, right now, the American Jewish community is supporting Jewish life in Russia, as well as those Russian Jews who want to leave. At what point should we stop the former and only focus on the latter? It's a good question. Well, like I said before, I think we have to both help Jews who want to emigrate from wherever they want to emigrate. We have to recognize that some Jews will live in places which to us seem totally inhospitable to Jews. We still have, there still is a, 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 a not insignificant community, Jewish community in Iran who could leave and they've chosen for various reasons to remain. You know, we could think that they're, uh, that they're totally deluded, but they still are living in, in Tehran and Isfahan and it, they still have shuls and, and Jewish lives. It's certainly not the paradise that, that, that the Iranian propaganda shows it to be, but it is there and they're still there to some degree by choice. And the same thing is true of Russia. We should support Jewish life wherever it exists and we should support Jewish emigration wherever there's a desire of Jews to leave. I don't, I don't think it's a question that we should, that would, I don't know, I, I don't think it's something that any Jew should say to a fellow Jew, you've got to leave and if you don't leave, I'm not going to help. So final question comes from Jeff Saperstein and has absolutely nothing to do with Ukraine, but has to do with uh, something that is probably somewhere in the back of the minds of every single person on this call. Um, will Israel attack the Fordo site or other nuclear sites? And what is the red line that would trigger that move? Uh, the problem with that question is that if the red line is crossed, it's too late. And it probably is, as far as Israel's concerned, too late at this point, because the level of, of force that you need to bring to a, to a site like Fordo, and it's not just Fordo, we know that, that there are a number of sites that need to be taken out if Israel or any attacker wants to significantly degrade Iran's nuclear capability. The level of, of fire, call it firepower, level of the amount of of bunker busting bombs and, and sorties of it. And, and you, we've had this conversation before you and I, Brett, of trying to, we've had to gain what would be needed in, 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 in bombers, in, in tankers, in, in, in ammunition and so on. Israel, for all the wonders of the Israeli Air Force, doesn't have quite that level. So I think the question is, 
is irrelevant at this point. There's only one country that if it chooses to take out Iran's nuclear capability can do that, and that's the United States. And I don't think either of us see that happening under any administration, to be honest. Uh, I thought you were going to say Luxembourg, but uh, I guess I guess. Uh, well, you know, they're a special case. You know, they have some some weapons that no one else is. Uh, but is that so? So more seriously, um, uh, is that uh, are we moving inexorably to a world of of mutually assured destruction um, between Israel and uh, and the Islamic Republic of Iran? And and an ancillary question. Was Benjamin Netanyahu fatally remiss in not sufficiently um, funding the IDF so that it could accomplish uh, the mission if it if it was tasked to do so? So I think that we we're, we're at the point where we have to look at all the levers possible to keep Iran at the on the threshold before the threshold because that's basically where it is now. And, it's a, and Iran can decide if it wants to get to the threshold. We just have to make sure we have to try and use all the possible levers that there are. And then it's not just military and it's not just sanctions. There are many other things that Israel and the other countries involved can do to try and make it clear that the Iranians not worth it. Why? We're not here to talk about Iran, so we're not going to go into it. When it comes to Netanyahu, was he remiss? Netanyahu was, was remiss basically in assuming that because mistakenly he thought that the Trump administration would, would go along with whatever, whatever, whatever Iran policy Israel said, therefore Israel doesn't really need to prepare. It didn't even prepare a, a plan B for the day that Donald Trump left the JCPOA. And you and I were not big fans of the JCPOA. I still think it was a mistake at the time and in the way that it was done to withdraw from it in, in, in May 2018. He didn't prepare a plan for that. He didn't put the idea on some type of, I wouldn't call it war footing, but certainly on, 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 a, on a higher level of, of preparation for some kind of uh, operation in that uh, thing. He, he assumed, and I don't know on the basis of what, that either the, 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 the new American sanctions would do the trick or that uh, the Trump administration would attack Iran at some point. Is Benjamin Netanyahu gonna be the next prime minister of Israel? I'd say he's got about 60% chance of, of getting back in office, but not, not better than that. Anshul, on that note, I want to be respectful of the time uh, that our, our very attentive uh, audience has, uh, has given us. Um, I want to thank you for being uh, such a superb contributor to Sapir. Merits voter, though you might be, we, uh, uh, when I started Sapir, I, um, uh, I agreed with uh, our publishers uh, and friends at the Maimonides Fund that we would be a publication that would include a wide variety of voices religiously um, as well as uh, ideologically. And uh, we were doing our best to uh, honor that commitment. And um, I think you should say that I'm, I'm not your merits voter. I'm your, I'm, I'm your yeshiva graduates. You are that, you are, you are, you, you, you are that, uh, as well. You're a man of many, many kippot. So um, uh, I hope you have a, a good time in London covering um, covering the, uh, the reign of Charles III. Um, and I look forward to seeing you in Israel when I'm there in a few weeks' time. So thank you again for, for participating, and we will see all of you 
at the next uh, Sapir Zoom, um, if not hopefully in person. Thanks again. God save the king. God save the king.